So in staff meetings, um, we had a rule, that we don't do it so much anymore, but we had a rule a few years back that if we're working our way through the agenda, I forgot, there we go. If we're working our way through the agenda and somebody takes the agenda backwards to something we've already dealt with, that person has to bring a snack next week. <laughs> this morning, I'm taking us back to something from last week's passage, uh, something that I wish I'd done a little more with, which often happens. So, since I'm the one taking us back, and it's my responsibility to provide a snack, I brought you all a picnic, it's out the doors <laughs> after worship, I hope you'll join us. Earlier in Revelation chapter 1, after the greeting and the salutation of verses 4 and 5, John launches into a doxology, which is a short hymn of praise to God, only in this case, the hymn of praise is directed toward Christ, not God. Now, we're going to hit this again and what it means, but this is one of the ways that John wants us to know that Jesus of Nazareth was and is God. When we looked at that doxology, uh, that hymn of praise last week, what I wish I'd spent more time on was the very first part of the first line in chapter 5. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. To him who loves us. I don't know about you, but it's easy for me to kind of just rush right by that. To him who loves us. I also said last week that the author of Revelation may or may not have been the disciple John, the apostle John, who wrote the Gospel of John. But then when I read these words, I kind of wonder how they might play out if the apostle John was in fact the one who wrote these words. What difference might that make? One of the ways John referred to himself in the Gospel of John was the one Jesus loved the one Jesus loved. It wasn't that Jesus didn't love anybody else, it was just that John saw the love of Jesus for him as a defining reality in his life, so much so that he kind of wore it as a badge of honor. Now what would it look like for you and for me to be most defined by the reality that Jesus loves us, to wear that as our badge of honor? Now, if John the Apostle was the one who wrote Revelation, how might we hear his words in verse 5, to him who loves us? No longer is it John whom Jesus loves. It is you, it is me, it is John, it is everyone. We are the ones Jesus loves. And no matter what John's first readers were facing with the empire of Rome, what they were fearing, or what you and I face today, this much is true. Jesus loves us. Jesus loves you. And that is perhaps the truest thing that anyone could ever say about any of us. We are loved. Karl Barth was a highly influential mid-20th century Swiss-German theologian <clears throat> whose written works are measured in shell feet, as my professor, my seminary professor Richard Carlson used to say. Bart's most famous work, for example, is his unfinished 13-volume Church Dogmatics clocking in at over 9,300 pages. On April 23, 1962, Karl Barth was a visiting lecturer at the University of Chicago, and after the lecture, there was a question and answer time. And one of the students asked if Bart could possibly summarize his entire theology in one sentence. Reportedly, this is what Karl Barth said. In the words of a song I learned at my mother's knee, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Whatever persecution John's audience was about to endure, whatever awaits us as we look deeper into the book of Revelation, whatever challenges lay before you and me in this life, this much is always true and will never change. Jesus loves you. And Jesus loves everyone you have ever met 
and everyone you will never meet. Back on track, today's passage. John tells us a little more about himself in the first verse. Verse 9. I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. John identifies himself as a fellow believer in Christ and as a companion in these three realities. Suffering, kingdom, and patient endurance. John is not removed from the suffering that his his sisters and brothers are experiencing and enduring. He participates with them in these very things. He speaks from experience. He is, after all, exiled on the island of Patmos, which is about 40 miles off the shore, the southwestern shore of modern-day Turkey. It's a small island, seven miles long, about three miles wide. So John, exiled because of his faith, is not free from the suffering of persecution, He participates with his readers in it. The second way he participates with them is in the kingdom of God. What a strange combination, side by side. We have suffering and we have the kingdom of God, the reign of God over all that is. How can these two things coexist? And why does John put them together like that? They coexist because, well, that's life. I think most of you know this already. That's life. It's the reality of life in between the first and second comings of Jesus, the Messiah. And as I said, um, as we said about one year ago in our series on Ephesians, we live in the overlap of two ages. We live in the overlap between this present age and the age to come. The fullness of the kingdom of God in all its justice and love and life and peace and, and blessing, the fullness of the kingdom of God will not come until the return of Christ but it has already begun to come in the death and resurrection of Jesus in and through us. Until Christ returns, there is suffering and injustice and conflict, but one day all of that will end. As John says later in Revelation 21, verses 3 and 4, at the coming of the new heavens and the new earth, he writes this, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. We just heard about the tabernacle in the children's message. This was God seeking to dwell with his people. God comes to dwell with again in in Jesus in a whole new way, again with the Holy Spirit, but this is way better. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. The kingdom of God theologians say, is both now and not yet. It is both now and not yet. It is both here and yet to come. And that tension that we experience is life lived in the overlap. It is a life that John and his first readers and we today all share in. And so suffering is part and parcel of what it means to live on this earth in between the first and second comings of Christ After naming suffering and the kingdom, John lists a third reality in which he participates with his readers, patient endurance. All these realities, John says, are ours in Jesus. That is the suffering, the present and coming kingdom of God, and the patience we need to endure are all a part of what it means for us to become a community of people who know God, follow Jesus, and pursue God's purposes in the world. All of it. 
And then John writes this in verses 10 and 11. On the Lord's day, I was in the Spirit, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet which said, Write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. On the Lord's day means Sunday. To be in the Spirit is likely a way of saying that either John was in some sort of trance of some kind or possibly in a deep state of prayer and communion with God, and he has a vision. A voice speaks to him from behind and says, write down what I'm about to show you and send it to these churches. He said last week that there were more than seven churches in that area and that John likely names seven churches because he knows them, but also because the number seven represents completeness in Hebrew numerology. Seven then stood for the complete church, all the churches in that province. Revelation was a circular letter that was meant to be taken to each of these seven churches and read aloud. Furthermore, John likely expected that this letter would then be passed around to other churches in that, in that vicinity. What's more, while each of the prophetic words Jesus has for the churches is unique to that specific church, what we find is that at any given moment throughout history, any one of these seven prophetic words given to these churches might apply to us as congregations and as individual followers of Jesus. What was spoken, spoken specifically and intentionally to these initial seven churches still speaks to us today, but it starts with them and it starts with their situation. The order in which these uh, churches are listed is likely the order they would have received the letter, starting with Ephesus, which was closest to Patmos. The courier would then travel up to the north, over to the east, and then down until finally on the Roman road, the main Roman road, until finally ended up in Laodicea. Each of these cities were about 30 to 40 miles uh, from the next city. The whole route was about 250 miles. Not coincidentally, each of these cities also had a Roman court of law where Christians could be charged with being members in what they saw as a subversive and dangerous sect. And at least three of these cities also had temples dedicated to Caesar. So all of them were either threatened by persecution, tempted to compromise their faith out of fear of the empire, or both. They were all either threatened by persecution, tempted to compromise on their faith, or both. As Virginia Stem Owens puts it, quote, the people to whom John is writing have very little control over their situation. Their choices are simple, giving in or giving up. Many of us <clears throat> at different times in life can likely identify with those temptations in some way, to give up or to give in. However, Revelation and these words to the seven churches tell us otherwise, to quote Jason Nesmith from Galaxy Quest, they say to us all, Never give up. Never surrender. My hope is to find something like that for you each week. I don't think it's going to happen, but we're two for two. Never give up. Never surrender. For Jesus never gives up on you. And he will never surrender. After Jesus has given his instructions to John, John then goes into great and magnificent detail about what he saw next. And the highlighted phrases of what I'm about to read to you are drawn, all of them are drawn from Old Testament imagery, 
imagery of God, imagery of heavenly realities. John alludes to Isaiah 61, verse 1, Ezekiel 43, verse 2, but most of the time he borrows from several places in the, book of, the Old Testament book of Daniel. Many of these phrases you're about to hear also reappear later in the book of Revelation. Verses 12 to 16. I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me, and when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet, and with a golden sash around his chest. The hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and coming out of his mouth was a sharp, double-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. In last week's passage, chapter 1, verses 1 through 8, John borrowed from Daniel 7, a very apocalyptic uh, section of that book. In verses 12 through 16 here in Revelation 1, John alludes once more to Daniel chapter 7. After receiving and pondering visions of four beasts, Daniel has another vision. Thrones are set in place. And the Ancient of Days, or the Ancient One, God, sits on the throne. This is how Daniel then describes God in that passage. Daniel 7, verse 9. His clothing was white as snow, the hair of his head was white like wool, his throne was flaming with fire, and and its wheels were all ablaze. A river of fire was flowing, coming out from before him. Now, John doesn't use all these phrases the exact same way that Daniel used them. But if we compare Daniel's language with John's language, it is clear that John wants us to know that the one who is speaking to him is God in the person of Jesus Christ. A little further down in Daniel 7, we get a passage that was clearly understood by the early church as referring to Jesus, verses 13 to 14 in Daniel 7. In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient days and was led into ancient of days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. I said this last week, just to repeat, to say that someone looked like or was like a son of man was simply to say they were a human being. They looked like a human being. However, over time, as this passage was understood more and more to refer to the coming of the Messiah. The phrase, Son of Man, became a title for the Messiah, a messianic title. Jesus was the Son of Man. He identified himself as the Son of Man 81 times in the Gospels. In Revelation 1, this Son of Man has a double-edged sword coming out of his mouth. We'll talk about that in in, in later episodes. Stands among seven lampstands and holds seven stars in his right hand. I said last week that you and I have to do a little more work than the first readers did to understand what's going on in Revelation. That those first people who read and heard this letter read would have understood more of what John was saying and what it meant, what, what, what John and Jesus are both alluding to. And what you and I don't know that John's readers readers did know is that in addition to the stars representing the seven angels, there was a strong cultural connection they would have caught. And it was directly related to the Roman Empire and to the current emperor at this time, Domitian. Domitian reigned from 81 to 96 AD. And one website I referred, uh, referred to him as the tyrant who shook Rome. There was a coin that was minted during Domitian's reign. 
On the head, the head side of the coin is the head of the emperor. On the back side is the image of the emperor's deceased infant son sitting on a globe, because even by then the Romans and the Greeks had begun to perceive of the earth as a sphere. Sitting on a globe, the child's hands are outreached, and surrounding him are seven stars. It was an image meant to convey divinity, cosmic dominion, and power. For John to see and describe Jesus as the one who holds seven stars in his hand was to demonstrate that Jesus, the true son of the true God, Jesus, not the emperor or the emperor's son, Jesus was the ruler of the cosmos. This vision John has of Jesus was an overwhelming sight, so much so that John must layer Old Testament image on top of Old Testament image to describe it. And then John writes this in verses 17 and 18. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead. And now look, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death in Hades. John is terrified by what he sees. And Jesus tells him not to be afraid. And then he uses several versions of phrases we've already encountered in the first eight verses to describe himself. I am the first and the last, parallels the statement made by God in verse 8, I am the Alpha and the Omega. Alpha and Omega, I don't think I said this last week, are the first and last letters of the Greek alphabet. This is Jesus' way of saying, I am the beginning, I am the end, and I am everything in between. To say that he is the living one, and that though he was dead, he is now alive for and ever, ever, uh, mirrors John's title for Jesus back in verse 5, the firstborn from the dead, and God's words in verse 8, that he is the one who is and who was and who is to come. There is a pattern to these self-declarations by God and Christ. At the beginning and the end of Revelation, God declares himself Alpha and Omega. Chapter 1, verse 8, chapter 21, verse 6. God also declares himself to be the beginning and the end at the end of Revelation. I feel like I should be at the end. At the beginning and the end of Revelation, Christ declares himself first and last. This is the same language that God uses about himself in the Old Testament book of Isaiah, chapter 44, verse 6, chapter 48, verse 12, first and last. And finally, Christ also says of himself in Revelation twenty-two thirteen that he is all three of these titles, Alpha and Omega, beginning and end, first and last. Scholar Richard Bauckham says of this pattern of revelation, quote, as a way of stating unambiguously that Jesus Christ belongs to the fullness of the eternal being of God, this surpasses anything in the New Testament. And then Jesus adds something new to the mix. I hold the keys of death and Hades. Both words refer to the same reality, death. Hades, properly understood, was not hell, or a place of punishment, it was the place of the dead. It was similar to the Old Testament concept of Sheol, if, you're, if you heard of that. For the time being, death and Hades are still realities for us. But one day, as Revelation 20 will later tell us, one day both death and Hades will be thrown into the lake of fire. They will be utterly and completely and soundly and unquestionably defeated, destroyed, gone. Christ continues, verse 19. 
Write, therefore, what you have seen, what is now, and what will take place later. So there's no clear and distinct, distinct line in the book of Revelation that divides between what is now and what will take place later. But it's worth noting that both of these are present. Some things take place now for those first readers, and some things will take place later. And some things, if we carefully read, and we'll get into some of this, we'll discover we're already in the past for them. To quote Doctor Who, at times Revelation is not so much a literal time, but more like a big ball of wibbly-wobbly, timey-wimey stuff. (laughs) It's like a Christopher Nolan movie that moves back and forth in time and dares you to keep up. Then Jesus reveals something new to John. Verse 20. The mystery of the seven stars that you saw at my right hand and of the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. These prophetic words to the seven churches, comfort where comfort is necessary and needed, and they challenge and rebuke and correct and discipline where that is what is needed. But then and now, whether we need comfort or whether we need to be challenged, it all comes from Jesus, King of Kings, Lord of Lords, the creator of the rolling spheres, ineffably sublime, as we will sing in a few minutes. The seven churches of Revelation, ECC, and other churches today, and everyone in every church between then and now, stand in the overlap between this age and the age to come, between Jesus' first coming and his second coming. We participate together in the three realities that John named at the start, suffering, the kingdom, and the need for patient endurance. I want to close with another quote from Virginia Stem Owens in her introduction to the book of Revelation in the Spiritual Formation Bible. She says this, and this is in the Bible app live event. She says, quote, John's vision reveals that in God's eternity, the battle has been won, the battle is raging still, and the battle will be won. Not that our fears and burdens are magically whisked away, but we see our earthly life in time illuminated by the light falling through the crack in the door that opens to eternal life. That's a fantastic image. We see our earthly life in time illuminated by the light falling through the crack in the door that opens to eternal life. She continues, that light transforms our perceptions and purifies our expectations. Our call is to remember Endure and anticipate. Right at the start, John and Jesus show us where things are headed. John's vision gives us some light falling through the crack in the door that opens to eternal life. And he calls upon us, he calls upon us to remember what God has done for us in Christ and is still doing. He calls upon us to live into and to anticipate the coming, future, final, full kingdom of God with the return of Christ. In what area of life is Jesus calling you to patiently endure suffering of some type? 
In what ways can you see and cling to God's kingdom reality in the here and now, even as you suffer, even as you endure, even as you keep having to exhibit patience with the way things are, and as you anticipate the coming final and full kingdom in the future someday? How can you hold on to that kingdom amidst, in the middle of your, of your suffering? Well, I suggest that it all begins where John begins. And where John will take us several more times at key places throughout the book of Revelation. It begins with a vision of Jesus. It begins with a vision of Jesus. And it begins with choosing to worship this Jesus, this risen Jesus, as King of kings and Lord of lords. As ruler of the universe, our creator, our redeemer, and our sustainer. We're going to finish with doing just that in just a moment. Would you pray with me? Good and gracious God, we thank you for these words from our brother John, for his faithfulness to write them down, and for the faithfulness of your people for 2,000 years to steward them and keep them and protect them and pass them down to us, for scholars who have interpreted them and translated them, Lord God. I pray that we too would get a vision, that we here who are part of ECC, in person, online, Lord God, that we would get a vision of the risen Christ. That that vision would sustain us no matter what we're facing. And that we would find the courage and the grace, Lord God, to worship Him. Help us to worship You and to worship Your Son, Jesus Christ. Help us to give You the praise and the honor and the glory that are due Your name. Help us to see things as they truly are and where they are headed, and to find courage in that, and strength in that, and passion in that, and help us to be faithful. In Jesus' name.